The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. I do want to congratulate, once again, the class of 2015. One of my favorite stories that ever happened here at TBC, though, happened last year. We put out the invite for seniors to bring their pictures, a toddler picture and a current picture of themselves to the office. And this lady shows up with two pictures of herself. And she thought we meant we were honoring all senior citizens. And when my secretary told her that it was for high school seniors, she said, well, I better call my friend. She's bringing her pictures up here too. I really hope she's not in the service, by the way. I hope not. Um, so turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We are um, in the middle of a series on Acts, and, and we have seen lots of pictures of Paul. We have seen Paul the missionary, Paul the church planner, Paul the go-getter. And today we're going to see a picture of Paul the pastor. And Paul's going to travel around several different locations, and he's going to be encouraging um, the people that he has visited before and hoping that making sure that they truly get it making sure they truly understand the gospel that he's been preaching to them, making sure they truly understand who Christ is, making sure they really get it. And this is the very thing that I want as a father especially. I've got a seven-year-old and also got a four-year-old. Seven-year-old's Landon, four-year-old is Sienna. And this is what I want as a father as well. I want to make sure my kids understand this faith that I believe in, understand who Christ is and what the gospel is. And so recently I took my son to Pine Cove for a father-son weekend. And it was a great weekend. We had a great time. And you're have, trying to have conversations. Of course, seven-year-old, they're ADD. They don't understand things sometimes. So we're trying to have conversations. And then the next weekend, we're back here in Temple. And I come to the 815 service because my family comes a little bit later on in the day. It's just a long day if you're here, all three services. So I come at 815. And so Landon says, Daddy, I want to go to church with you this morning. And I thought, you want to go to 815? What are you, crazy? What's wrong with you? And so um, we get in the car and we go to the 815 service. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, man, he is something, God's doing something, like the weekend was really good, now he wants to go to church with me at the early service, like, he is committed, he is dedicated. And so, he's sitting out there with me in the service, and Gary's up here preaching it, he's bringing it, he's getting intense, he's getting passionate, Landon's eyes are fixed on him, and then Landon taps me on the shoulder, and he goes, hey, daddy, did you know they put MSG in all kinds of food? Except for Pringles. They don't put it in Pringles. So I can still eat Pringles, right? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we've got a lot of work to do here. So you, we can think that our kids are really getting it. We realize we've got some work for us to do. And so this is kind of where Paul is. Paul's in a place where he's going back and encouraging these people he spent some time with before. And he wants to make sure that they truly understand the things that he said to them before. So look with me in, um, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, Acts 20, verse 1. It says, after the uproar ceased. So if you remember back in Acts chapter 19, there was a riot in Ephesus. A couple weeks ago we talked about that. And so after this uproar ceases, Paul sends for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So follow with me, if you will. Picture a map of western Turkey. That's where Ephesus is located, western Turkey. And Paul is there with them, and there's a riot that breaks out. 
Paul wants to jump into the riot because he's Paul and he's crazy. And he wants to jump in. The, uh, the town clerk uh, gets involved. He quells the riot. And then after this riot happens, here's what happens. So Paul and the men almost get killed in a riot. And if you're almost killed in a riot, are you going to be encouraged or discouraged? Most likely discouraged. But what does Paul do just after this riot? He goes to encourage the disciples in Ephesus. And so Paul goes to strengthen them. He's probably concerned for them because because of the persecution, they may be ready to bail on the faith. And so he wants to go and encourage them, make sure they're, they're truly on board, make sure they're, they're being strengthened in their faith. And he doesn't stop there in Ephesus. He then goes up to Macedonia, which is northern Greece, encouraging the church along the way. So why did Paul go to all these places where he had already been? I think you really see Paul here take a pastoral nature with these people because he wants to make sure they get it. He wants to make sure they're still in. He wants to make sure they're being encouraged in their faith. He's concerned for them, maybe a little fearful for them. And as a pastor, as a, as a high school pastor especially, I can relate to this. Because we get concerned sometimes. We get fearful sometimes. As you saw these students up here on the stage, I know that it's bittersweet for me because I know they're going to graduate and go on to other things, but I know the stats aren't very positive for those that remain in their faith once they leave high school and go off to college. So many students graduate from high school, then graduate from faith. And if you have seen the stats, you know this is the time of year where, as a pastor, I can get real concerned and fearful of those kinds of things for them. A couple years ago, I read a book called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking Faith by David Kinnaman. In the book, he has some alarming statistics. He says that teens are the most religiously active people in the church typically. But when they get to their 20s, something happens. And Americans in their 20s are the least active people in the church. 18 to 29, least active in the church. So what happens once they leave home, once they leave high school? He says 59% of those raised in the church will at some point leave the church. And he says, he breaks it down in three ways. He says, you can't just paint with a broad brush and say they all fit the same category. He says, you've got to break it down this way. Number one, he says, some people he would refer to as nomads. These are those who walk away from church but still consider themselves Christians. If you were to ask them, they would say, yeah, yeah, I'm still a Christian. I still believe all that stuff, but I've just pulled away from the church. Now, maybe they read books, listen to podcasts, watch television, but they're, they would still say they're a Christian, but they pull away from the, church, from the church. Secondly, he would say prodigals. These are people who lose their faith describing themselves as no longer Christian. This would be a person that would say, I no longer believe what I used to believe. And here at TBC, we believe that no one loses their salvation. So this is someone who was never saved. If someone can say, I don't believe what I used to believe, then I would say they never had the Holy Spirit, and I would say they were not never really truly a Christian. Maybe their rejection is emotional. Maybe someone treated them poorly at church, and they've just had this emotional reaction against Christianity. They've bailed on their faith. Maybe there's someone who has had an intellectual rejection of their faith. They just can't quite make sense of how the Christian faith can tie into other issues they see throughout um, the world. 
I had a friend who was like this. Um, I had a friend that I had several guy friends, four guy friends I was close to, and there was this one girl that always hung out with us. Now, no one of, none of us ever dated her. It wasn't like that. We were just friends with her. And um, I grew up on the East Coast, and she, in her young adult years, she actually moved out to Los Angeles to pursue acting and those kinds of things. And she's been in some commercials and some small roles in different shows. But when I was in California last month at a conference, my wife and my family, we decided to meet up with her and just check in and see how she's doing. I haven't seen her in 15 years. And she made it very clear. She knows I'm a pastor. She made it very clear. She's like, yeah, I don't really believe all that anymore. And she's someone who did mission trips. She did... She was in the youth group with us. She was, just, she was on. She was on with us. And yet now she's just totally rejected her faith. The third kind of person he talks about are those he calls exiles. This is someone who is still invested in Christianity, but feels stuck between culture and the church. This person cares deeply about their faith. They care deeply about the church. But the problem is they see the church as not engaged to the culture. And so they bail on the whole thing because they see the church not being relevant to the culture. And they so badly want the church to engage the culture, but they think they're not getting the job done. So they totally bail and back out of the church. I knew a student like this when I was in college. I was an intern at a church in Arlington, Texas. And this student, his family was beset by tragedy when he was in high school. His older brother committed suicide, and he's the one that found him. And so from an early age, he just had this seriousness about his faith. And he just looked at the church and thought, you know, these kids are out here playing games in youth group. And meanwhile, guys like my brother are struggling and depressed and going through horrible things in their minds. And so he just thought there was this disconnect between the church and the people the church is supposedly trying to reach. And as he got into college, he was a very deep thinker, philosophical, reflective but he began to back away from church because he really felt like the church is not doing a good enough job in engaging the people they say they're trying to engage. And so this person often feels lost in the church because let's admit it, the church can be a weird place, right? We are, we are a bit weird to the outsider. They're, they're going to come here and say, well, this, this is a weird deal that they're doing in here. And so um, this is actually the, the, probably the one I relate to the most, exiles. Just feeling like you struggle sometimes with how we are as a church, how we are in the body of Christ. And so if this last one, if number three is the one that you struggle with the most, I'm going to encourage you in this direction. The church needs people like you. You have a chance to be a prophetic voice in the church. Now, not in an arrogant, self-righteous kind of way. But you've got a chance to be a prophetic voice in the church and hopefully help the church in the areas that you feel like we aren't doing so well in. And so if exile is where you fall, I'm going to encourage you this morning to stay committed to the church and and help us function better in the culture in which we find ourselves. Now I want to um, give you a chance to just be honest this morning. How many of you all would say that you have struggled at some point with one of these three? Just lift your hand. Just be honest. Wow. Decent number of you. You know, recently I read um, another blog where this guy tackled the issue of what's different about students that remain in the church. And he said on his blog, um, what he sees in his students, in his youth group, is that number one difference he sees with students that stay in the church versus those who don't, is number one, they're actually converted. 
which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And so there might be, and I have to acknowledge as a pastor, as a high school pastor, there might be a really, there might be a lot of really nice moral kids who just aren't really Christians yet, if we're honest about it. Someone might come to church for a long time, but never really surrender their life to Christ. And so he's saying that those who bail when they leave home, they might not just, that maybe they just weren't ever saved. Maybe they never really surrendered life to Christ. This is why I always press the point with my students. I don't assume just because you grew up in church that you're actually a Christian yet. We really push with our high school and junior high students the idea of surrender. Have you ever personally surrendered your life to Jesus? Because I don't care if you attend church. I mean, I care, but not like I care. I care in the sense of are you just coming and attending church and is that it? Or do you truly know him? Are you converted? And the second quality he sees in, in students that are different, that remain in the church, he says they've been equipped, not entertained. This is why we do things like impact. Because it's not our job as pastors to entertain students. Our job is to equip them. And so we have 150 junior high and high school students doing impact this year. I have to rent three. You can clap for that. Yeah, we can clap for that. That's incredible. I've got to rent three buses possibly to go to impact camp to train these kids. And what's amazing is a few years ago I tried doing a ski trip. And we just got one bus, and I was like trying to fill up the bus, and I couldn't fill up one bus to go to Colorado. I've got to take three to impact camp. It blows my mind, yes. It blows me away that our students, they they actually want mission. They actually crave mission. And so I would tell you that that people that don't own their faith, People that never own their faith or live on mission in high school are the ones that can typically send a fade away when they get beyond high school. People do not own their faith until they live on mission. Number three, the third thing he says, he sees, is their parents preach the gospel to them. Now this is not meant to be a formula. It does not mean that if your parents aren't Christians, that you're doomed. It also doesn't mean that if your parents are Christians, that you're a shoo-in. Because I've seen it both ways. I've seen the, the kid that had parents that are great, godly parents. They're preaching the gospel. They're p- praying for their kids. And the kid just goes, you know what? I don't want any of that. I'm just going to walk away. I've seen that. But I've also seen the kid who defies all the odds. The kid who has no Christian parents, no extended family that are, that are Christians. And yet somehow, by the grace of God, that kid has been snatched up and God saves them. I've seen that kid as well. There's no explanation except for the Holy Spirit. But I will say that this is not a formula, but it does underscore the role that parents play. People like me can only do so much. I know that many of you think that your kids don't listen to you, right? And I think that they do. They just don't want you to know it. Because if they're aware of, you know, you get the whole idea, right? But... They don't, they don't want you to know it. And so sometimes pastors get concerned, maybe a little fearful for what we see coming down the road. And this is Paul. And so he goes to encourage these people. And so Paul goes on to Macedonia. And then he goes to Corinth, which is in southern Greece. Let's pick up in verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, There he spent three months, 
And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus, Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul goes to Corinth and stays in Corinth for three months. Do you know what he did for those three months in Corinth? He wrote Romans. Doesn't that make you angry? I mean, it took me a year just to study Romans. Paul just three months cranks it out during his winter break. And so while he's in Corinth, he writes Romans. And while he's there, he wants to go from Corinth, when winter's over, he wants to go from Corinth over to Syria by boat. But there are some Jews that are plotting against him. They're trying to kill him. And so Paul's thinking, should I get on a boat with Jews that are trying to kill me? Probably not. And so he decides to go by land back to Macedonia. And he goes through Macedonia. And as we read this list of these men, it's easy to gloss over the details. But don't miss this. Luke lists out these men. Why does he include these men in this passage? Number one, he's trying to show that Paul is, he's take, Paul's taking these men with him for two reasons. Number one, protection. He is carrying an offering from the Gentile churches in Greece over to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And if you're taking money from, for that distance back then, you better have an entourage. You better have a posse with you. And so he has this, these men go with him. So number one is for protection. Number two, it's for accountability. Because Paul understood ministry as a team. It's amazing. Paul, Paul gets it. He understands. I've got to surround myself with other men as I go and carry out the mission that I'm on. And as I read these names, it's easy to gloss over the names and just bypass it as a list of names. But think about this. As I read these names, I couldn't help but be humbled with gratitude at the names of the elders and the deacons and the staff here at TBC. And just the privilege that I have to serve alongside some godly men and women in our church. And so I just sent out an email to our team and just said, hey, let me know how long you've been at TBC. Not on staff, but just been at the church. And so they responded back. And so Gary's been here for 34 years. Bobby Arnold's been here for 31 years. I didn't know Bobby was over 31 years old. I knew I'd get you at least once, right? Shana's been here for 20 years. Beth, 19 years. David, 15 years. Casey, 15 years. Chase, 13 years. I've been here for 11 years. Tim's been here for 8 years. And Mark didn't respond to his email, so I can't tell you how long he's been here. (laughs) Typical worship guy, right? So why is there such longevity? I'm not meaning to prop us up and say, hey, look at us. I just want to give some glory to Christ this morning about this. But why is there such longevity? I think the elders and the deacons and guys like Gary and Danny, they understand that ministry is better as a team. It has to be done as a team. And this is really rare because when I was in college in an internship program, the leader I worked with said, yeah, if you're going to be a pastor, get ready because leadership is lonely. 
And I just thought, that, that sounds depressing. Now, I get it. You've got to make some hard decisions. It can be an unpopular position. I get that. But he said, leadership is lonely. This should not be. Leadership should not be lonely. In fact, um, I read some stats recently in an article that I read. It said 70% of the pastors, 70% of pastors surveyed said they had no close friend or confidant. 71% felt burned out, fatigued, depressed. And what's depressing are these statistics, right? Some of you may have heard of a guy named Mark Driscoll. He's actually a guy that's been, um, I've been observing his ministry from a distance for a long time. He spoke in my college service, in a college group I was part of, about 20 years ago. He launched uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, one of the least church cities in the nation. And over the last 20 years, the church just grew and grew and grew. 15,000 people on a Sunday recently, and multi-campus, and they were just changing culture and changing things and seeing things happen, baptisms all over the place. And then this past December, everything just came crashing down. And it's sad. It's sad. And the failure here was not moral, and it wasn't theological. But the failure here, many of the pastors that used to work there, if you Google up their church right now, you will see that the church no longer exists. As of December 2014, the church has totally disbanded. Mark Driscoll resigned. One of the biggest tragedies I've seen in the evangelical church. He was looked at as, you know, one of the, one of the 25 most influential pastors of our generation. And I still think God's going to continue to use him in some way. But right now, he is without a church and seeking out what God would have him do next. But the former pastors of the church said that what they thought happened was as the church began to blow up and explode and began to grow, the leadership got smaller at the top. They began slicing off leaders. And as things began to get get big, they got smaller and smaller in their senior leadership team. No accountability. And one man who used to write books with Driscoll named Jerry Brashears, he said this, many churches today have a problem in that they give lip service to co-laborers while depending on a single superstar. And if it's all about the superstar, then what if things go wrong with him or her? You might not have a church anymore. And so again, I don't say that to dance on anyone's grave, because I think God's going to continue to use him in some way. I don't say to prop us up. But I do say it just to give us a cautionary tale about what can happen if we don't do ministry as a team. And if anyone had reason to go solo, it was Paul, wasn't it? I mean, Paul could have easily said, hey guys, like, Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I mean, I've got some street cred here. I'm doing miracles. I'm writing Bible I don't know if he knew that back then, but he was writing some pretty heavy stuff. So if anyone had a reason to say, hey, I'm going by myself, I'm going solo. I mean, Paul could have done it. And there are people trying to kill him. He could have said, hey, I can't trust any of you. I'm going by myself, right? And so, but Paul knew that he was not above accountability. He knew that ministry is better done as a team. And so Paul and his team, they go to Troas, which is now the, they're back in uh, the upper western corner of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And so pick up with me in verse 7. 
as we read the story. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for, and I can't say that word in church, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at that place, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. The day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So let's just recap what happened in this story. So Paul is given this sermon in this house, and he's just preaching on and on and on. And this boy falls asleep, and he dies. Paul raises him from the dead. And so the moral of the story is, don't you ever fall asleep during my sermons. Because I'll leave you dead. I'm not as nice as Paul. And so how do you apply a passage like this? Like, what do, you, what do you make of this story? What's the application for this? You might say, well, the application is really easy. You know, preachers shouldn't preach so long. And I'll say, we can turn the tables and you shouldn't sleep, right? And so what do you do with this Story. I mean, seriously, don't ever complain our sermons are too long here at TBC. We've never killed anybody. I mean, someone once said, if you're going to preach this long, you must also be able to raise the dead. We need to go back to verse 7 with me. This is the first reference in Acts, or anywhere, to worship on Sunday. And they're in a big house with an upper room. This is a place of gathering in most houses back then. These rooms had large windows that you could open up to let air in. And so Paul knows he's leaving the next day. And so he knows he's leaving, so he's got a little bit of time and a whole lot to say, which is a bad combination for a preacher. I'm guessing it wasn't one of his three-point sermons. And so they had to use these lamps to light the room, so the room is getting hot and stuffy. People are tired, they're hungry, it's late, the room is packed. All a bad combination for people with ADD, right? And so in verse 9, we see there's this young man named Eutychus. We believe he's between 7 and 14 years old. He's probably part of a slave family. And back then, Sunday was a work day. And so they're meeting in the evening. So they're having a Sunday evening worship service, which proves the early church was Baptist. And so, so I love how Luke words this. It says in verse 9, it says, He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. You think Paul ever read this and said, Hey, can you just, Luke, can you just change the wording on that? That sounds bad for me. So I love how he words this. And so the boy falls out of the window. He dies. 
Paul rushes down, he heals him. And then what does he do? He keeps on preaching. Let's be honest, if, if I'm preaching a sermon and someone dies, sermon's over, right? For Paul, it's just half time. <laughs> I mean, for Paul, it's just, okay, I preached for four hours from 8 p.m. to midnight, and oh, here's a little halftime show, and then we'll keep preaching till morning. So there's a lot of death in the Bible, but this has to be the funniest death by far, I think. But there's one thing I don't want you to miss from this story, and it's this. The church gathers on Sunday. Why? Because they're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It's now the new day of worship for the church. It's Sunday. It's celebrating resurrection. And while they're celebrating on Sunday, they are having a fellowship meal. They are celebrating with the bread and the wine or the grape juice. And they're celebrating this resurrection. So they're celebrating the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus On Sunday. And while they're doing all of that, what do they see? They see a real life resurrection. And when you hear Luke's tone, the whole story just seems a bit comical. It seems like the story has a light nature to it. It seems light, it seems comical. And the question is how are we able to see the comedy in this story? Here's how because we know the ending. We know there's a resurrection coming. We know that this story is not how it ends. He, he, we know that he's raised to life in the story. And so I think we can learn a profound truth here that when we see life through the lens of resurrection, suddenly it's not as heavy. When you and I see life through the lens of the resurrection, suddenly life takes on a bit of a different bent. And I'm not demeaning death. I'm not trying to say death is funny or comical. It's not funny. It's not comical. But when you see life through the lens of the resurrection, suddenly it takes on a different weight. It's not as heavy. Death loses its sting. And so the resurrection is woven all throughout this story in Acts chapter 20. But that's not all we see in this passage. That's not all it's about. Because when you look at the story, it seems kind of like unrelated. Like you're looking at the story and you're going, okay, it's, it's a story about travel, a story about a team, and a, and a funny story of a, of a kid dying, if that's possible. And, and yet, what is the big picture that we see here in the story? And I think it's this. The common thread we see in the story is a picture of Paul, the pastor. We normally see Paul as a missionary, church planner, a go-getter, but here he's a pastor. I want, I want to show you four commitments that we see throughout this whole passage with Paul. The first one is Paul is committed to encouragement. He's committed to encourage the people that he comes in contact with. Secondly, he is committed to a team. He is bringing glory to Christ, not to himself. He is not building a monument to himself. He's building one, the church, to Jesus. Thirdly, we see that he's committed to God's word. Paul takes his job to teach God's Word seriously. He's not going to these churches just to hang out and say, yeah, I want to encourage you and just kind of have some you know, food with you and hang out. He's, he's, he's really coming to them to preach to them and saying, I want to come bring God's Word to you. And so he's committed to God's Word. It says they, they talked from 8 p.m. to midnight and then again until morning. And I don't know what's more impressive, Paul teaching that long or that they stayed. 
I mean, one guy stayed until he died. And so we see in Paul and also in the people this commitment to God's word. We also see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I love that verse because it shows that the people in Acts chapter 2, verse verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they didn't have to be entertained. That means they were engaged. That means they wanted to hear. They were craving to hear from God's word. And you might say, well, you know, yeah. Well, they got to hear Paul. I mean, Paul was coming into town on his big tour bus with his entourage. And so they got to hear Paul. Of course they stayed. And you're right. I mean, they they did get to hear Paul. But every time you and I open up this book, we get to hear God. We get to hear God. And yet, so many times we sleep. And I don't mean that physically. That's true sometimes. But I mean that spiritually. When you and I open up this book, we get to hear God. And yeah, it'd be great to hear Paul or any of the apostles, but we open this book, we get to hear God himself. And so Paul had a commitment to God's word. You know, and I get it. I mean, this book can be intimidating. I mean, you've got to read other books just to understand this book. No other book is like that. And so this book is complex, and it can drive many of you away because it's so complex. But I'm going to challenge you this morning that it's complex because it was written by the God of the universe. It's not going to read like Dr. Seuss. And so it's going to have some depth and some complexity. In fact, I would say I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad it's complex because we've got a lifetime to dive into it, a lifetime to dig into it. I mean, I was raised in the church. I went to seminary, and I teach this book for a living, yet I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. I have preached over 400 sermons with your students and your children, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface at 38 years old. And so, yeah, it's complex, but God has given us a lifetime to dig into it. And so we see Paul's committed to his word, to God's word. The fourth thing we see he's committed to is to community. And these people are also committed to community as well. We see this picture. They're in this house. They seem to crave being together. Um, We saw as he visits each church, as he travels with a team, we see it in the story. These people meet in a home. There is probably food and laughter and connection and discussion. There is studying the Word of God together. And I think so often in the West, we tend to be so efficient in how we do church. And I just come in for an hour, do our thing, then go home, right? And we see in the early church, there's this life on life. People are involved in community. There is, there is inefficiency. There's an all-night church service, right? And so as an application, I'm going to preach till 3 o'clock today, right? And so this is why we talk so much at our church about being a part of community, being involved in a community group in a home. And if you're someone who's not involved, I'm going to encourage you to get involved in one of those. Or if you're leading one, invite someone to the one that you go to. Or if you're not a part of one and you have leadership ability and a desire to serve, possibly start one at our church. And all through the New Testament, we see these commands, the one another commands. This is love one another, bear with each other, forgive each other, confess to each other, serve one another. Can any of those things happen 
apart from community. Those things can't happen in the context of a Sunday morning worship environment, typically. And if you look also at the spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, every spiritual gift in the New Testament is a relational gift. You can't experience it just in a Sunday morning worship gathering. And so we're always pushing this idea of community here at TBC. Do you put yourself in environments where these things can take place? Recently, um, I'm a part of a group on Friday evenings. Recently, we decided to go, for two and a half months, we decided to share our personal testimonies. And it was powerful. For two and a half months, we got to know each other's stories. And people know us, and we know them in a way unlike any other. And it was powerful. Do people know your stories? Do you know their stories? And you might say, well, that's why I don't want to go. I don't want someone to know my story. I got, I got some junk I don't want to share, and I get that. But when people know you in this way, and they still accept you, they become an extension of God's grace to you, a living reminder that you aren't just accepted by them, but by Him. And they, they play a role of grace and God's mercy in your life, and you for them as well. And so do you know people like this? Are people a part of your life in this way? Because the gospel can't really be lived out unless we are a part of this kind of community. I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. God, we're just so grateful for who you are, so grateful that we get to be a part of your body. God, help us to never take that for granted. Help us to never think that we're above it all, Father. Help us to know that like Paul, we've got to be committed to these things as well. And thank you so much for the example that he set for us and that he shows us, Father. We pray all this in your name. Amen.